This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Today, we are revisiting some very important concepts that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shared many years ago, and this is the Dr. Martin Luther King Celebration Week in the United States. What I want to revisit are his four strategies for nonviolent social change. And if you go back and listen to prior years, and to the Martin Luther King shows that we have done, you will hear some of this information. However, we're putting it in a little different format this time. What I want to remind you of is what is the purpose, first of all, of the four strategies. One of the things Dr. King said is that his vision, his vision was really to create a relationship of love and brotherhood that was rooted in equality. Secondly, he was wanting to move people from prejudice and racism to understanding and again to brotherhood. And thirdly, to get to the promised land of racial justice. Well, those objectives and that vision is still incredibly relevant today. I love the idea of getting to the promised land of racial justice. Now, one of the concepts he said and mentioned was that freedom has to be demanded. In other words, the people who may be seen as oppressors or whatever you want to say about them, there are reasons that they're doing what they're doing and they're benefiting from the status quo. So to interrupt that, you really have to demand a change. Now, when he said demand a change, he did not mean go out in violence and go out to harm people or to fight evil with evil or fire with fire necessarily. So I want to review again the four tenets of nonviolent social change and what those are, what they mean, how we can use it today. So number one, the first step is to collect facts. You have to go out and be able to identify that yes, there is a difficulty, there is a problem, there is an injustice of some type. So you're collecting facts, number one, to show that there really is injustice. You don't just go out and act before you have the facts and information. Secondly, once you've determined that there are some scenarios of injustice, then you go into a negotiation phase. And that negotiation phase actually takes you to work with those people who are in a position to make a difference. Those people who may be holding the status quo as it is today. Those who are in positions to, whether it's politically or if it's in an organization, they can change laws, they can make change in organizational structures, rules, and so on and so forth. So you're attempting to work things out using existing 
structures. That's incredibly important because you are really looking for a win-win. Now, let's say you negotiate and you're talking to the people in all of these organizations and structures and you're not getting anywhere. So you determine that ultimately you're going to have to get to the fourth step, which is direct action, which would be the nonviolent protest, the boycotts and other things of that sort that you might do. However, you don't jump from negotiation to direct action. There's a third step in between. And that third step is what he called self-purification. In other words, when you're operating from a nonviolent frame, you have to make sure that you're prepared and ready for whatever you might have to deal with. So for example, in Dr. King's time, he conducted workshops with people and trained them on the behaviors, the tenets, the attitudes, the thought processes that go with nonviolence. In other words, this doesn't necessarily come naturally. It requires preparation. It requires training. He had to train the people so that in case those who were against what they were promoting attacked them and came to physical blows and tried to harm them in any way, they had to know how to stand and absorb all of that hurt and all of that assault without assaulting back. That's a huge tenet of nonviolence. So people may be violent towards you, but you are not violent back towards them, no matter what they have done or are doing to you. That takes training. That takes discipline. You have to really bring your whole self, emotions, physical, everything into a certain space in order to be able to respond in that way. And when you are participating in civil disobedience, you might have to go to jail. And jail may not be a pleasant experience. And therefore, he had to train people how to survive in a prison context and also in a jail context. Now, after self-purification, after you've already done the attempts at negotiation, after you had already established that there's an issue, and now you're ready for direct action, like I said, it could be a march, it could be a boycott, it's a nonviolent approach that says, okay, we're going to do something that affects very often economic scenarios or bottom line. So the bus boycott definitely affected the economy when, in fact, that was done in Alabama. So this is what we're talking about. Direct action, you're still, even in direct action, you're still trying to invite the parties back to step two the negotiating table for a win-win. That's the whole purpose. The direct action says, okay, we want you to take us seriously. We are forced to be reckoned with, come to the table and let's negotiate a better outcome, something that's a win-win. So again, here's why I believe that now is a very relevant time to implement what Dr. Martin Luther King implemented so many years ago. First of all, in today's world, we actually have more diverse people available as strategic partners. There have always been diverse people 
who were willing to stand for justice and what was right. Uh, many of the protests and the boycotts and things that occurred back in the past would not have been successful had they not also been joined by a diverse group of people. Well, today we have even more diverse people willing to march, willing to stand together for that objective of collective brotherhood and understanding. That is a real asset and benefit in today's time that we can choose from even more diverse strategic partners. Secondly, there's more visibility in today's world for different issues because we are living in a world where the cell phone is everywhere, where video cameras are everywhere, where news coverage goes beyond country boundaries even. It doesn't take long for information to travel quickly around the globe and for people to see what's happening and what's going on. And in fact, that march that took place years ago where Representative John Lewis was marching across that Pettus Bridge with 600 peaceful protesters, it was because when the police attacked those peaceful protesters with nightsticks and attack dogs and so many other things and caused harm. And this was broadcast on the news. People were so outraged when they saw what was going on and that these protesters were completely peaceful. It caused the laws to change. And today we have even more opportunity to display in a public way what often happens behind closed doors. Thirdly, in today's world, there's even more access to a variety of people to the systems in our societies that actually maintain things as they are and also systems that could be a force for change. That means there are people who already have seats at the table and who could get seats at the table. So we can use these strategies for nonviolent social change to great effect in today's world. Now, I want us to think about a workplace application. So I want you to imagine that in your workplace, maybe you look around and the company has been very committed to bringing in diverse people of color at lower level jobs in the organization. And maybe historically in the organization that there has been no such commitment. That really hasn't happened. But for many years now, people have been coming in, diverse people of all types at these lower level jobs. Then they can rise up, get promoted to a certain level and then there's a ceiling beyond which they no longer are promoted. Maybe it's the executive ranks. Maybe the people don't advance past the executive ranks in your organization. So you want to ask the question then, what is causing that gap? Why are these people not able to go from one level to this next level? You don't want to assume the reason. You go back to that first principle, if you will, and collect the facts. What's really going on? What's really happening in your setting, in your organization? What's causing that gap? So you might have to interview a lot of different people. Maybe you're interviewing the hiring managers. What is it that they're seeing? What is it that they're doing? How come from their perspective, 
John Doe does not get to move to the next level or Jane Doe doesn't get to move to the next level. You also want to interview those who didn't make it. What are their perceptions? What do they think happened in their interviews and the reviews of their records and their history and their background? You want to contrast the records of those who were successful getting to the next level with those that were unsuccessful. Were there any material differences between those records? What, again, is the gap so you know how to close the gap and what are some steps that could be taken? If some people in the target group, the group that may be inadvertently disenfranchised, have actually made it to the executive levels, you certainly want to interview them to find out what was different in their profile, in their record, in their experience. Now, there are multiple possible reasons why there could be the ceiling that you experience. And I'm not going to name all the possibilities here. However, I'll name a few of them because these are some of the ones that may come to mind. Some of you may think, well, the reason why there's the ceiling is because there are prejudiced gatekeepers who are keeping people out. That may be true or it may not be true. You don't want to assume that just because a group maybe disenfranchised means that someone is holding a viewpoint that you could describe as prejudiced. There could be some other scenarios going on. For example, it could be that there are some problematic criteria that those who are in the hiring positions are using. And perhaps these are criteria that they've always used and they've always done it this way. And in their minds, these criteria are effective and it's what works. And maybe it's not really necessary, but they don't know that. So it could be there's a certain educational background that's required, a certain degree. And maybe that degree and that background is not required to actually do the job. And the people in the target group may not have that particular education or background. However, they may be highly qualified to move into the next level and to do the next level job. So you want to challenge sometimes the selection criteria. Maybe they're outdated. Maybe they're not relevant or no longer relevant. And if we think back in the olden days, when there were barriers in place to people voting, one of the barriers would manifest in a way like this. Well, you can only vote if your grandfather was a landowner and also had the right to vote. Well, clearly that meant whole groups and categories of people would never be able to vote as long as those kind of criteria were in place. Thirdly, it could be that there's a lack of mentoring, a lack of training or preparation for those who are now coming up to this executive rank level. People have to be groomed for these levels. They have to learn the culture and the environment and how to operate in the executive world. So is it the case that some people get groomed and others do not? Are some people being prepared and others are not being prepared? Maybe that's the level of intervention and the place where you want to make a change. Sometimes it's just that there's continuing education that people have to have along the way and they haven't been getting that continuing education. They haven't been getting that next level that they require in order to step into new responsibilities, or maybe they're not getting 
the feedback that they need. They're doing jobs at a lower level and there's some improvements that are necessary, but nobody is brave enough to sit down with that person and to provide feedback that could help them improve and step up to where they need to be. So that personal development is really important. And what we know from prior research is that very often it is people of color who do not get the necessary feedback and therefore don't know often what they don't know and where the blind spots may be. So I'm saying, yes, there may be unfair barriers in place. There may be prejudiced people who are gatekeepers. And also there may be other issues and scenarios so that when you collect data, you will discover more of what the real problems could be and also where the opportunities for intervention exist. I say all of this to say that we can still very powerfully use these four strategies for nonviolent social change, including in the workplace. And remember, don't rush to direct action. There are so many steps prior to direct action. And what I have seen in modern times, when people rush to direct action, sometimes they're solving the wrong problem. They have not made a case or collected the data to say what is really going on. And a lot of times when you rush to direct action, you have not done self-purification. How you show up and the way that you're demonstrating really is not along the lines of the principles of nonviolent social change, and you're causing more issues, taking the eye off of what really needs to be changed. So you want to show up in such a way that the issue is highlighted, not you being seen as a bad actor, so to speak. So don't rush to the direct action. Go through the steps. Collect the data. Negotiate. Look for the win-win opportunity. Do the self-purification. And only when the negotiation is not effective and you've really given it all you've got, then go to direct action and use direct action to bring you back to negotiation so you can make a difference and come up with a win-win outcome. As an executive business leader, you have many difficult decisions to make every single day. And it's important to think about how do you develop your people? How do you launch and develop high-performance teams? And how do you create a culture that wins every time? If you would like to take a look at your organization and to talk about the wisdom and guidance that would propel you to create a best place to work and also competitive advantage, then I invite you to apply for a consultation to work with me. Go to my website, www.transleadership.com, go to the services page, and under organizational consultation, you will see a tab that says, contact us. That's where you request a consultation. So if you are an executive business leader in a medium to large size company, then I look forward to receiving your application and having a conversation with you.
You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.